Make yourselves comfortable. Um, so for the sermon today, uh, Pastor Murray Palmatier will be bringing us the, the Gospel of John Revisited. Thanks, Dylan. Good afternoon, everyone, and to everyone online. Special greetings to Ray and Olivia and Claude and Linda. For we know you are joined, you've joined us, and anyone else who's joined us online. We hope your Sabbath is a blessed one with us. We have uh, lots of folks in our area here traveling, so it's nice to uh, be able to open up the service to those online. So we welcome you as we close out the Roman calendar year 2019 today as far as sabbaths go sometime after the 2018 feast of tabernacles we began a series of studies on the gospel of john for various reasons we sort of got sidetracked on other topics and haven't uh, gone back to it to complete the study what i'd like to do today and it's our intention of getting back into the study of John, we got through about chapter 8, I believe, in our studies. So I'd like to catch us up to with where we've been so that we can, again, uh, in the uh, coming weeks, kick this back off so we can get through the Gospel of John before, uh, hopefully, hopefully, God willing, we can get that done before Passover. Because obviously the, the end of John coincides with Passover. Uh, for those joining us online, you haven't been part of our local studies, this recap here will provide you with a brief overview of the book and then set you up for studying the book on your own. I definitely encourage you to, uh, if you haven't uh, set, settled on anything right now for your studies, the Gospel of John would be good in the lead up and the coming. As Brother Dylan mentioned, we're a little over 100 days away from Passover. That will go by quickly, so we must be about preparing for that, and the Gospel of John is a good way to do that. We've obviously now safely navigated through the dreaded winter holiday season. We'll call it that. We won't call it what it's called. Uh, where the story of the life of Jesus Christ gets mishandled, uh, to put it nicely. Um, but John has a unique perspective of, as we've come to study here, as we've in our previous studies, on the life of Christ. A very unique perspective. He doesn't cover it in a chronological way, the, other, the way the other uh, three accounts have been covered. So let's, what I'd like to do then is uh, jump into this gospel and recap where we've been. And we'll do it from a variety of perspectives. To begin, let's go to the end. For those of you who uh, are here in Burlington, you know we've covered this uh, many, many times. But we're not going to go to chapter 20. We're actually going to begin in chapter 21. And we're going to begin with the last two verses in the gospel account. to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that John is in fact the author. Here in verse 24 of John 21, we read, This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So John repeatedly in his account always refers to himself as the disciple or the disciple whom Christ loved. We know that Christ was closest to three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. John and James were brothers, the sons of Zebedee, and then Peter, the brother of Andrew. It was those three disciples we know that Christ was closest to. 
If you go back to verse 20, we know that the writer can't be Peter because the writer in verse 20 refers to Peter, calling him then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following. So we can narrow that down to James or John from that account. But we also know that James died very, very early in the story of the New Testament church. If you hold your place here, go to Acts chapter 12. We see James, the brother of John, was martyred very, very early in the account of the New Testament church. Here in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some of, from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John. So not, the, not, there was also James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle. Here, this is the apostle James, the initial, from the initial group of disciples. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people of the, after the Passover. Now, in Luke's account, we see James being martyred here, and it was, interestingly enough, it was done in advance of Paul's first missionary journey that he and Barnabas went on, which you can find in uh, chapter beginning in chapter 13. So James was martyred very early in the account of the New Testament church. If you go back to John 21, because the Gospel of John was written so late in the first century, we uh, scholars agree, and we but we have biblical uh, enough biblical evidence here to to agree with the scholars that it was indeed John, the son of Zebedee, who was the author of this book. Important here in verse twenty four that we pick up on a notion here that says, and we know that his testimony is true. This is very important that he uses this word. This is a testimony. This gospel is a testimony. John is presenting this, and you'll recall if you're here in Burlington that we've covered this in some of our discussions about this study, that John is using this in a similar way as one would testify in a court. And if you look up the Greek word for testimony, you will, in, in Strong's uh, concordance, you will see that. This is, this is done in such a way that he is documenting his thoughts here as if he would be in front of a judge and, and um, affirming that what he, what he is saying is absolutely true. And we can sort of get that context in verse 25, where he says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there's a whole lot he could have said, but he specifically wrote this gospel account as a testimony for some reason. So the, the things that he chose to write about were very specific and were for a very specific reason. And he was providing a written document that could be used, in, a, in essence, in a court of law to certify that what he is saying, that he is a witness of, and this is the absolute truth. The other things, there could be more that he could have said, but there's no need for the purposes of why he was writing this gospel. So let's go to First Timothy 4 to sort of get some context as to what the church was going through, what the surrounding culture and the prevailing winds were, as to why John would need to even provide a testimony. 
So he's saying that he's providing a testimony. What for? Why is there a need after when you consider that this is one of the last books that was written chronologically near the end of the first century? Why would there even be a need for another account of the life of Christ? There are already three really, really good ones uh, that cover various aspects of it. Why is there a need for this? First Timothy 4, written near the end of Paul's life, probably somewhere between 10 and 20 years, likely, before John wrote his gospel that we're reading. But that does, those are just round numbers. Verse 1 of First Timothy 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now just a quick aside, and we won't go into this rabbit hole too far other than to say this is not talking about eating anything that God made. This has, this is a completely different, different, uh, meaning here. We won't go down into, into that, uh, here today. But we see some of what Paul is dealing with, and if Paul is dealing with it, the other apostles are also dealing with it. And that is those who are departing from the faith and giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, those who speak lies and hypocrisy. So this is the prevailing wind that, is, that the apostles are, are confronting here, and that is those who teach hypocrisy, those who teach fables, uh, whether they be from outside or those that have left the faith and are now enemies of the faith. But in context, in context, those who are adversely affecting the body of Christ, the context goes back to the previous three verses, chapter 3. In verse 16, or verse 14, we'll pick it up. These things I write to you, Paul is saying to Timothy, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he proceeds to say this. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. He's affirming this fact that Christ, as the Son of God, was manifested in the flesh, justified by the spirit, seen by many, including the angels, preached not just to the Jews, but among the Gentiles, so that the world may have an opportunity to believe, and then when he was resurrected, he was received back up into God's presence, the Father's presence, in glory. Based on that fact, he then proceeds into chapter 4 to talk about the prevailing winds that some are preaching hypocrisy. Some are preaching that, that this truth is not so. That Christ didn't come. That he was not the Son of God. That he was not, didn't come in the flesh and was not resurrected. A bunch of, bunch of those items. We have major issues today in our society that we need to guard the body of Christ against. Back in the first century, Christ coming in the flesh was one that was battled on all fronts. Whether it was the Jews who didn't believe at all in Christ, or whether it was the Gentiles who 
also didn't believe that someone could from from the Godhead could come into flesh and then be returned back to spirit and be resurrected. So the various beliefs that they were countering. Back to John 21. Again, as we recap where we've been in the study of John over the last number of months. So again, back to John 21. This is the disciple, the last two verses again, who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his, this testimony of his is true. John was the last living witness, at least among the disciples, the initial set of apostles, written near the end of the first century, and before he died, he wanted to leave one last living testimony of the things he knew to be true. And we see that as he, uh, what he, what he, as he reads, as he writes that there. These things, and we know that this testimony is true. So he's leaving a written account of the things he absolutely knows to be true. What about? We see that it is a testimony, that Christ is, that John is leaving this testimony as his last, his last gift to mankind, this last testimony of Jesus Christ. What about? Let's go to John 20. For those of you here and been through our studies, you know where we're going now, John 20. But it's important that we look at it here as we recap the, the gospel here of John. John 20, verse 30. And truly, talking about this testimony, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Recall what we just read in John 21. There were so many things he could have written, but he chose the things he wrote for a specific reason as a testimony to something. What is that something? But these, this, these the, what he chose to write, the signs that he selected to write about, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. Twice he said he could have written many more things. But he wanted a tight, very precise testimony that would stand up in a court of law to prove very, something very specific. That the man they knew as Jesus Christ, as Jesus of Nazareth, was the Christ that was written about in the Hebrew Scriptures and prophesied, that he was not just a man, but he was the Son of God, and that we would have life in his name if we believed. Life in his name if we believed. Let's go to, hold your place there, let's go to First John 5. We'll see this was something very prevalent on John's mind as he got to the end of his life and his writings were recorded. First John chapter 5, verse 13, we see something very similar written at the end of his, his general epistle here. Verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who, be- who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Similar concepts that we read here that he writes about back at the end of his epistle, at the end of his gospel. So there were already at least at least three biographies, we call them gospel accounts, that documented his life. There was no need for a fourth in a chronological way. 
But there was, according to John, the last living apostle, an original apostle, there was a need for one more eyewitness testimony from this last living witness. Let's go to John 2. How was he to do this? So we see the need. We John has documented the need that he is offering a, a testimony that would stand up in a court of law. And he's doing so so that people would come to believe that he is the Messiah that was prophesied about, that he wasn't just a man, but he was the Son of God. And believing in these two things, not just we hear, we hear the phrase, believe in Jesus Christ. That doesn't, that doesn't go deep enough to how, how John describes this. We must believe not just in Jesus Christ, but we must believe that he is Messiah and the Son of God. And believing in those two things, that enables us to have access and an opportunity for eternal life. That's what John wanted to document. How was he going to do that now? Remember, this is a tight testimony that could stand up in a court of law. John chapter 2, verse 11. This, referring to the previous 10 verses, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. But this first account that he writes in chapter 2 was the beginning of signs. Many refer to this, and if you actually, if you're reading the King James, I believe the King James uses the word miracles. If not here, it does in other places. John sees them differently. They're not just miracles. They are signs, and signs that prove his glory. We see that here in verse 11. These were the beginning of signs, and these signs manifested his glory. That was his whole purpose of writing this. Remember that he is Messiah and the Son of God. So he used, in part of this this airtight, court-approved testimony, he used signs, proofs that he was Messiah and that he was the Son of God, that his glory could be manifested in something very tangible that we can we can hang on to and that would pass a court of law. The word miracles, the word uh, in King James, it's miracles, it's uh, 4592 in the Greek concordance, and the, the word is uh, samion, samion, and it means signs. And when you look into it a little deeper, it refers to signs, marks, or tokens. So again, miracles are okay, but it doesn't quite describe it to the depth of why John chose these. It also, the meaning of this word, that by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others. So how can we prove and know that he was, this isn't just any man, this is Messiah and the Son of God. We're going to use these very specific signs, these markers, these tokens that distinguish him from everybody else. Because there were we, we, there were other magi, there were other wizards we know in biblical accounts that even back in Moses' time, there were wise men that tried to do things. And, and in some cases, they tapped into the power of Satan to perform what looked like miracles. This was different. This would distinguish him from all other signs and miracles. Uh, and the, the, the uh, Strong's also goes to say that it's an unusual occurrence that transcends the common course of nature. So these were very special, specific signs that John chose over the course of his life witnessing these things 
of all the things he says in chapter 20 and 21 that he could have written, he chose some specific sides to back up his testimony that would stand up in a court of law. So that's why he wrote. He wrote as a testimony, the last living witness, so that all who could come to believe in Christ as Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, the Son of God, not just any man, and in having a firm belief in these two facts, would give us access to eternal life. But before going into the signs, let's go back to John 1. Before going into the signs, these markers that would prove his point, he spends some time outlining what that point will be. We, we dropped in at the end to see what he wrote about, but when he began his, his gospel account, his testimony, he spends the first, what we call most of the first chapter, outlining what that point will be. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now here he uses a teaching tool that we've discussed previously in a sermon called Remez. And Remez are these hints that, based on the knowledge of the audience, who were very familiar with their Hebrew scriptures, they would, Christ, and in this case John, writers or teachers, would drop a hint that if you knew your Hebrew scriptures, you would know exactly where to go and what he's talking about. John starts out in this by referring to in the beginning because he takes Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God right back to the creation account, what started this entire thing. That was very important. John starts with creation to say, in essence, that this man that you believe was just a man, that you Jews don't believe is the, the prophesied Messiah, and you Gentiles don't believe could be resurrected into into a spirit being. This man was part of the Godhead back at creation. And he taps into that by starting out his epistle, by, or his gospel, by referring in the same phraseology as Genesis, the book of Genesis. So for those who are paying attention in that audience, he makes this direct connection, repeating the wording of Genesis 1, making no mistake that this being who became Christ has always been and has always been with the supreme God, the supreme God. And as he continues, and we don't, we are not going to go through this line by line. This is more an overview and a recap. Verses 3 to 5 show us that he was instrumental in the creation account. He was part and parcel and very instrumental in that creation account, which goes to, remember, always keep those two things in mind, that he was Messiah and the Son of God. This goes to his part of the Godhead. It, not many can claim to be, be creator. This being who became Jesus Christ could because he was all the way back to creation. Verse 6 to 8, as Brother Andrew read when we started, then makes a connection, actually, to Malachi 4. Makes a connection to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. There was a man sent from God, verse 6, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. 
you go back to Malachi 4, Malachi 4, and you'll recall Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the children to the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. Connecting that to the one who, and then we'll get, he gets into it a little deeper as he gets into his gospel, that this was the Elijah who would pave the way for the Christ to come. So again, cites Genesis and cites, cites the reference back to the one who would pave the way that we see not just in Malachi, which is actually in Isaiah as well. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But this is very significant in the book ending of the creation account and Malachi's prophecy as bookends of the Hebrew scriptures that they held dearly, that they held very dear to, in this introduction to his testimony. Why is that significant in his testimony to those who would, who would pay attention? They should have known. Being scholars of the Hebrew scriptures, it was referred to in the beginning, all the way up to the very end, bookends of the Hebrew scriptures, they should have known. And we see that elsewhere where he calls them, castigates these teachers that they should, they should have known these things. But interesting, as he begins this gospel account, he bookends the entire Hebrew scriptures. Verse, then we get into verse 9 to 11. It's a direct connection back to the covenant God made with Abraham. So this is, this is a beautiful way that John has of showing Christ as Messiah and as the Son of God through, throughout all of the lessons of the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 9, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And remember, he was of the lineage of Judah, so we're talking specifically about uh, the, the Israelite people. He came to his own, and his own, these Israelites, these, Jew, these Jews, didn't receive him. They were looking for him. It was part of their Hebrew scriptures from front to back. They didn't see him. They refused to see it, either by not seeing it or by ignoring it or refusing to see. They didn't receive him. Again, linking back to the, the covenant God made with Abraham and then subsequent prophecies that, that the Messiah would come through the lineage of Israel. Verse 12 to 18, again, we won't take time to go through this in full, but this begins his full explanation of his testimony. So we're, we're sort of lining this up. Uh, we've, sort of, we've seen the end, seen him point back to, back to what, he's go, what he talked about. Get back to the beginning, we see what he's talked about is from creation all the way through to Malachi, including the covenant God made with Abraham, all points to his Messiahship and that he was part of the Godhead. Verse 12 to 14 really is the full explanation of the testimony that he is about. If you could, it's almost like an SPS, a specific purpose statement, or when, when we say this is, this is the essence of the testimony. But as many as received him, verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Wow. This is huge. Think, think of, 
Who is listening to this? These Jews that believe there is only one God and it is an impenetrable Godhead. We know, looking back, that God is a family and he is expand- He created us so that he could expand his family. So when we, we sometimes read these things, we become so accustomed to it, it doesn't have the impact on us that it had on the audience that he was writing to then. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. He's tapping right back into that thing that we read about at the end, that if you believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah and as the Son of God, you, have, you will have the right and the opportunity to become a child of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in verse 14, and the word, this part and parcel of his testimony, the, the, the encapsulation of this testimony in these three verses, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, this is huge. This is, he was solidifying that this is a fact. We've come to accept this as, as in 2000 years later, this is, this is old hat to us. This was not old hat then. This was John needed to testify that this was absolutely true. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word, right back to verse one, who was God and has always been dwelt among us. This is, this is magnificent. This is unspeakable. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a synopsis of this testimony that he was documenting as the last living witness. The remainder, as you walk through the, the rest of this account, brings us more evidence that the patriarchs and the prophets also all pointed to him. And take some time on your own to go through the, the, the Gospel of John here, especially chapter 1 that we're into right now. The rest of that, up to about verse 18, is more evidence that the patriarchs and the prophets all pointed to him as well. Verse 19, again, we're not going through this line by line today. Because the witness that preceded Christ, referencing John the Baptist, was how the Hebrew scriptures ended in Malachi. We know that it ended with a prophecy that there would want, and again, Isaiah also refers to one that would pave the way. John goes into detail, beginning in verse 19, as to the message of John the Baptist, his message and his ministry. But let's pick it up in verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They knew there was a coming Messiah. John was special. The things that he was teaching and and doing, it was clear he was different. Was he the Christ? John's absolute, John the Baptist, again, two different Johns. This is John the Apostle writing about John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. Well, then are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? He then quotes Isaiah. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. 
John is telling in his his testimonial account here, remember your prophet Isaiah. You're one of your chief prophets, the one you look to the most, telling you what would precede the Lord's coming. I am he, he said. I am that one that is preparing and making straight the way before the Lord. So John's point here is he begins his testimonial account here in what we would call chapter 1. In a quick synopsis, he brings much of the Hebrew scriptures into play. Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant, Moses, the law, and we haven't gone through and read it line by line, but if you do, you'll see these into play here. Moses, the law, Isaiah, Malachi. He's saying, you don't need my witness. You've always had it with you in the scrolls. You've got all you need in your scrolls, back in your temple. You just missed it, or you're ignoring it. But you've got all that you need in your scrolls. But I am going to give you this one last testimony as the last living eyewitness. So John lays out his testimony here, and the reason how he's going to go about this, what he wants to get across here in chapter 1. Again, we won't take time to go through too much here. As we jump into chapter 2, and start getting into these signs, which are an important part of John's testimony, we see here in the end of chapter 1, the last 16 verses, the selection of the disciples was very important. He starts out with selecting a few that would end up being leaders, most of them, but he needed to start with a core of believers, of which John himself was one. And remember what we read in chapter 2 and verse 11. This was the beginning of signs, this first sign that Christ did in Cana, turning the water into wine, so that his, not only was his, so that his glory would be manifest through this sign, and his disciples believed in him. His initial selection of twelve started to believe. Now there was a process before they would become full-fledged, Holy Spirit-filled apostles. But they started to believe, and it starts back with him selecting a few that he would work with at the end of chapter 1. Where There are seven signs that John records in our studies here, because we've only got through to about chapter 8. We've really only covered five, and my purpose here is not to, to specifically walk through each of those signs, because we did that in our studies, and for those that are online that have not studied this, We'll sort of walk through this a little bit. The first sign is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where Christ, at a wedding, in an apparent emergency, changed water into wine because there wasn't enough wine. You can read read that for yourselves in verses 1 through 10 of John chapter 2. What we're going to see here, though, is John was very specific about saying these are signs. The reason why is recall and always keep in mind, this was a, a testimony that John was writing so that it could be upheld in a court of law. And he was using specific stories for a specific reason that would point to his messiahship and his, his deity. And in verse 11, he concludes that sign. We've already read it a few times, but we'll read it again. This account that I've just read that I've just written for you, John says, is the beginning of these 
testimonial markers that Christ did that would manifest and show his glory as Messiah and as God. And it was the what started their belief in him because it was the belief in those two things that would provide access to eternal life. John chapter 4 was sign number 2. John chapter 4. We'll get into, we'll, we'll cover a little bit of the teachings in later once we get through the signs. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46 through verse 54, was the account where he healed the nobleman's son. Again, take time to read that on your own. We don't, we won't take time to go into the details we already have. But we're, as we, this overview that we're looking at today is really to solidify the fact that this was a testimony that John was preparing as the last living witness. And I keep saying that, but it's important because that was the reason for this, this entire gospel. And how we see this, how he's linking this in something that was, could stand up in court is verse 46, he begins, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. This ties right back to sign number one. So all of the signs didn't happen there, but we're seeing a transition here. And he's, he's, link, he's going to link most of these together so that as part and part, as a, as a prosecutor would, would set up a timeline to prove something, to prove the guilt or innocence of someone. Again, he came to Cana of Galilee. So remember that first sign? We're back here again. Same location. We're going to link this up. And then we see here that he heals the nobleman's son. Verse 54, again, as part of his testimony. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So John is very specific. He could have written many, many, many things, but he chose specific incidents that would act as markers, as signs, as proof that he was Messiah. We'll get into that in a little bit. So, again, linking these up. Verse 5, or chapter 5, the first eight verses is the third sign. It's when he heals the paralytic man. And again, the connection here in how he writes. After this, so remember where we just were, that second sign. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up into Jerusalem. And then he proceeds to tell a third account. A third account. So much so that when we... We get down to, sorry, just lost my place. After this, verse chapter 5, verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then he proceeds again to, as we see down in verse 8, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and immediately... The man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And as we covered when we looked at this, the the miracle, not just in having this man get up off his bed, but his muscles worked. Everything worked to a T. Not when, if if this were to happen without the presence of God, the muscles are atrophied, he doesn't know how to walk. It's been years since he's, if he ever has even been able to walk. But he immediately was made well, took up his bed, and carried his bed with him. And we covered it. 
a, a little bit of that in detail previously. Dropping down to chapter 6, verse 1, we come to the fourth sign where he feeds the 5,000. We see this covered in the first 14 verses. After these things, again, using the same, the same uh, verbiage that he used in chapter 5 to connect number 3 to number 2, we see the same verbiage. After these things, you want more proof? Here's more. And here's another, here's another sign. Drop down to verse 12. So when they were filled, again, these 5,000 that were fed, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So very little food was turned into a feast for 5,000 so that they were completely filled and there was leftovers. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, and here's where John is purposefully choosing these signs to get to the fact that they are witnessing the glory of Christ and people are starting to believe. Verse 14 says, Then those men, when they had seen this sign or this sign, that Jesus did, when they saw this particular sign, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. This is that prophet that has was spoken about all the way back in the Hebrew scriptures, all the way back to Moses. This is that prophet that has come into the world. This must be him. So now the belief is now starting to expand. It's not just the 12 disciples, but those who are seeing these signs, it's becoming obvious. This, this is the Christ. This is the prophet we've all been looking for. Again, the reason for these specific signs that John chose. We then get into Christ walking on water in chapter, right, right, immediately following in verse 15. And we see that from verse 15 through 21. And this was sign number five. Verse 26 tells us the importance of signs, where Christ is now communicating with his folks. Verse 26 says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs. So in their infancy, their spiritual infancy, they weren't really yet to the point, most of them, of acknowledging that he is the Christ. They were just awe-inspired by the fact that they filled their bellies, that there was no food, 5,000 gathered, and they walked away absolutely stuffed. But because you ate the loaves and were filled, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Again, always pointing towards his purpose, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Very specific as John goes through all that he writes is for a very specific reason, and he's tackling all of these truths as a testimony. Continuing verse 28, they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom you sent. This is the reason for the signs, that we develop, that people develop a belief in Christ as the Son of God that was sent by the Father for the redemption, the, the possible redemption of mankind. So these all signs, these signs all point to Christ as God. 
that was the, and we've only covered five. We won't jump into the other two because we haven't covered them here. We'll get into that as we finish off the, the, the study in future weeks and months. But when we look at these five sides, they all point to Christ as God. He had power over substances. He can change water to wine. He's God. Power over time. Power over geography. We read these Christ walking on water. Don't forget the, the last part of this miracle, verse 21 of chapter, chapter 6. Then they willingly received him into the boat after he had walked on water. And immediately, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. They didn't have to paddle to get there. The boat ended up immediately where they were intended to go. Christ has power over geography. He has power over space, power over time. They instantly, when he got into the boat, they were at the place they were supposed to be. He created something out of almost nothing. Five loaves and two fish fed 5,000, and then they ended up with more than they started with. Twelve baskets full. Five loaves wouldn't fill initially 12 baskets. But what was left over filled all of these baskets. Power over nature. Who does this? Who has this much power over creation, over time, over nature, over substances, over geography, over, over all of these things? Who has this power? Chapter 6, verse 14, we read, This is the prophet, the prophet, capital P, that was prophesied to come into the world. That's who has that power. God has that power. This this must be him. This must be the son of God. Chapter 7, verse 30. Who has this? Who does this? Who has this power? Chapter 7. Again, John lining these things up to make, to prove his thesis that Christ was the son of God and the Messiah that was prophesied to come into the world. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him. This is chapter 7, verse 30. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people, so now it's way beyond just the initial 12 disciples. Many believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? Their point was this. If not him, who could be the Messiah? If this isn't the guy, after all of these things that he has, he has done, these signs that he has done, if not him, who in the world could, how much greater could a Messiah be than this? It has to be him. And if not him, who, who, who could this be? The belief was starting to spread because of these signs. Again, we still have a couple of more signs to go. We'll get into that as we here locally finish off our study. Interspersed amongst these signs are teachings, and we covered those as well. We'll just sort of briefly review those teachings. But recall that everything John wrote was for a very specific purpose, that it was the testimony of Christ as Messiah and as the Son of God. In chapter 2, amongst all these signs, he uses the temple as a backdrop to his temporary time here. Recall the, 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 the acknowledgement that he came into his creation and put on human flesh and dwelt with us. That was, that was unheard of and unbe- literally unbelievable 
by the by the spiritual religious people of the time, whether it be the Greeks or and the Gentiles or whether it be the Jews. And in understanding his temporary life here, as part of this his teaching interspersed here with the signs in chapter two, his life will lead to his death, which will then lead to resurrection. This is a key core teaching to come to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the the anointed one to come, and the Son of God. And that belief in those two facts will give us eternal life. Chapter 3 covers this concept of being begun. Deacon Jan covered that back on, I think, the first Sabbath of November. If you haven't seen that uh, um, sermon, it's called Born from Above. I would encourage you to look that up and have have a listen to that. We won't get into that here. But this concept of being begotten answers the question, what do we do once we believe? So, I'm a, so I become to believe in something. I become to believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. What do I do? John 3 covers that. That teaching there covers that. But becoming begotten, begotten heir of God through baptism. John chapter 4, again, interspersed in between the signs of these teachings expands the scope of those he is witnessing to. It's now no longer just the disciples, but he expands his scope. And along with other teaching opportunities, let's go Let's go back to John 4, we'll read verse 21 through 26, and give you an example of what we're talking about here. John 4, verse 21 Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, which I believe was uh, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And this was that conflict you recall between um, uh, the Jews and the um, Samaritans. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Again, it a truth that goes all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, because there are false worshipers, when you use the word true, there that means there are false ones, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he was speaking to a crowd, and often spoke to a crowd of false worshipers. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. So they knew. They knew there was a Messiah coming. They didn't quite yet know who it was. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Christ finished this interaction with her, speaking, simply saying, I am who you're speaking of. I am that person. I am that being. I am that one. So again, we see here as an example of his teaching as he's starting to spread this teaching beyond just the, his core his core believers of the, the, the disciples and in Jerusalem and spreading that out. Chapter 5, when we go went through that, Christ claims the authority as the one who gave the law. That again leads all the way back to his deity and his 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 where we began the whole account that he was with God and he was God in the very beginning. He supersedes as the one who gave the law, supersedes anyone 
who claims to be a teacher of that law. And he uses the Sabbath as a backdrop to get this point across. So we see some teaching about the Sabbath that is in there, but really that's a support for the fact that he is the great lawgiver. And he was there in the beginning when the law was given. But in all of this, he always points to the supremacy of the Father. Chapter 6 goes into detail about the bread of life. Because this was all about providing life to those who were facing death, as all humans are. All humans are facing death due to sin. But he was the bread of life. And remember that belief in him as Messiah and as the Son of God provides us access to life. And then chapter 7, again, intermixed with these signs, Christ affirms that he was sent by the Father, does his will, the will of the Father, and will return to him. And we can obviously see a lot of those teachings wrapped up there for us, compressed there and, 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 and told to us by, by John in this account. We then come to chapter 7. I invite you to turn to chapter 7. Christ repeatedly uses the backdrops of the Jewish festivals to convey the Jewish festivals. I'll put the quotes in that. We know they're the, the festivals of God that were given, not just in Leviticus 23 to Moses, but all the way back this holy time we know was part of the creation account where Christ, as John opens his account, was present for. But he uses, John shows that he uses the backdrop of the festivals to convey the teachings that John is stressing. And interesting enough, most often, and I, I don't want to quite say only, but as I recall, I, th- I don't think the other festivals come into play, but Passover and Tabernacles is what, he, is what he uses throughout those accounts, the bookends, as the Lamb of God, and then his, his presence in the flesh is, t- is tabernacling in and of itself. But showing, using these backdrops of the festivals, that they are not Jewish festivals. But again, as I say, this holy time that was part of the creation account that Christ was there for. He also uses this concept, because this is all about redemption. Remember the twofold purpose that of proving that he is Messiah and the Son of God, so that we may have life in this belief. The plan of salvation, as we know, and as we've come to know in our studies, is played out in these festivals. And Passover and Tabernacles, the eighth day, are bookends to these festivals, much like his account in John 1 used the bookends of Genesis and Malachi to describe, to point him back, point us back to the Hebrew scriptures. The eighth day of the feast is encapsulated for us in John, as we, as we've studied, John, beginning in John 7 verse 37, going all the way, and we haven't gotten into covering all of this yet, to chapter 10 verse 21. When you, as you, when you read through those, those three and a half chapters or so, what you'll see is that each story is linked to the next. You study the words of timing as, as one, as one story ends and goes into the next, you'll see words of timing that lead us from one to the next. That Christ is, is proceeding through the day here, beginning in chapter 7, verse 37, 
which was likely at the beginning of this of the eighth day in the evening, because then you see in chapter eight in the in, the, in verse in verse two, early in the morning he came again to the temple and people were worshiping in the temple. It would not have it. It doesn't seem likely to me that that would have been the day after the feast. People would have been starting to depart for their homes, but they were still there worshiping in the temple. And then chapter eight, chapter nine, and most of chapter ten is part and parcel of the same day. And we'll get into digging into that a little bit more in, in when we get back into our detailed studies of this gospel. But for the purposes of this review and getting the overall context of this gospel, let's go to John 7, verse 37. Read the, those three verses. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him, if if we believe, those listening would believing in him, would receive that Spirit. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. It hadn't been given en masse the way it was in Acts 2, once Pentecost had fully come after he had been crucified and resurrected. Now this is, we, we tap into this at the end of the feast, and it's a real feel-good uh, piece of scripture about the living water coming through Jesus Christ, and we all have an opportunity for to partake of this living water. But recall that we talked previously in previous messages, and I referred to it earlier in a couple of occasions, about this remez, this hinting back to the Hebrew scriptures. And recall that he was not speaking to a group of Christians gathering at the Feast of Tabernacles the way we would. He was speaking to Jews who were rejecting him and who did not want... There was only, only a few were starting to come to, being, to believing in him as the Christ. He was turning the religious, uh, the religious circles on its head by going to their festivals and proclaiming stuff about him as Messiah that they absolutely didn't believe. So while, while we take this today and we see this as very feel-good, which it is, we can't lose the fact that he was turning the establishment on its head. And by referring to, by referring to these rivers of living water, it's not just that water libation ceremony that they was part and parcel of the Jewish festival, or how the Jews kept the festival of God. But it goes back to Jeremiah chapter 2. And recall, they knew their scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 2. And by referring to these rivers of living waters and turning the establishment on its head, they knew what he was speaking about. Jeremiah was one of their beloved prophets. Verse 13 of Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. This isn't the world. This isn't non-believers. Jeremiah is referring to the chosen people of God. They've committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Recall, he was telling them to come and feed off of the rivers of living water. And then in other places, as we become believers, that water will flow through us, and we become we become conduits of this living water for others to drink from. 
Here, broken cisterns hold no water. They, it just it goes in and flows, it drops on the ground. And here him, he's referring to himself here as the fountain of living waters. This also proves that Christ was, the, was, was part of the Godhead in the times of the prophets. Because in John 7 we read, Come drink from me, rivers of living water. And here, referring right back to Jeremiah chapter 2. The context of Jeremiah 2 was the Hebrew prophets, in this case Jeremiah, but we know all of the Hebrew prophets were, were felt this way. They were concerned about Israel's defilement, that they were unpure and unacceptable before God. We go back to verse 4 of Jeremiah 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Now, keep in mind, you're in Jerusalem keeping the feast with the other Pharisees and Sadducees and all of the other establishment, and you're now hearing this human claiming to be God and pointing back to, referring back to himself in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. What, back, back to verse 5, or verse 5 in chapter 2, Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? He's calling them out on these things. You're here worshiping Yahweh? I don't think so. You're here in full of evil, because you can't see that I am the Christ. You've been looking for it for centuries. I'm here, and you're refusing to see. Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you into a beautiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. You have ruined everything with how you act and behave. Pointing and by extension, he was he was labeling these religious leaders in the same light as Jeremiah was here. Drop down to verse eleven. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've had all of these answers at your fingertips, but you have, not only haven't you listened, Christ is telling them, but you've defiled my people. Return to me, the Messiah, the Son of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, and I am the living water. This was his message at the Feast of Tabernacles back in John 7. Let's go back there. So when we read chapter 7, verse 37, 38, and 39, this, this beautiful notion that we can drink from the fountain of living waters, don't forget what that is pointing back to. And this was the message he was trying to get across to the non-believing Jews of his day. Verse 40. And here's where the debate becomes important. Belief has gone past the initial group of disciples. The Jews are coming to the feast 
to celebrate, the Jews that are coming to the feast in celebration are starting to believe. Some are. Officers are starting to believe. Even a teacher of the Pharisees in Nicodemus is believing. This is turning the establishment on its, on its head. And recall, John, this is a te- John's last living. He's, he's writing about what happened 40, 50 years previous as a reminder of this testimony. Verse 40, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard the saying, Truly this is the prophet. This was the whole point. This is what John is getting down to. Others said, This is not just the prophet. This is the Christ. This is the Christ. This belief is starting to spread. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Now, we, we, in our studies, we went into this a little deeper. We don't have time for that now. Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem? Suffice to say, this is really just pointing back to the many messianic prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. Where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. Some of them wanted to take him. No one wanted to lay, no, but no one laid hands on him. There were some that believed, there were some that wanted to put him to death. But at this point, they did not want to, to do so. Obviously, God was protecting Christ because there was many things that had yet to be fulfilled. But part of that notion here is this started to be a pretty popular guy. And the, again, the religious elite were struggling here because they wanted him gone, but the masses were starting to build. Then the officers, came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, why have you not brought him? This is your Bring him before us so we can get rid of this. The officers said, no one has ever spoken like this man. There's something special about it. Even the officers who were tasked with doing whatever the, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted them to do, they wouldn't touch him because they said, this, this is something special here. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Again, we see the, the, the dichotomy here. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Nicodemus was even starting to stand up. So the crowd was starting to become believers. The officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees were becoming believers. And even a Pharisee himself, a teacher like Nicodemus, was starting to become a believer. John 8. I'm going to wind this down here. Here's an interesting exchange as we wrap up and set the stage to move on in this study of John's gospel. John 8, verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am, again, this is again, he said this, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. In your current condition, unless you believe in Messiah, because that was the whole point of this testimony, yet you're not going to ever be able to come and join me in paradise or be redeemed in your current condition. Because you must believe in me as Messiah, believe in me as Son of God, and that is your access to obtain an opportunity for eternal life. The Jews said... Verse 22, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For 
Now, as you read, we read this last part of this next sentence. Look at the word he, and the he is in italics. The he is not was not part of the initial man, uh, transcript or the manuscript. It was added in by the translators to make the, the, the sentence flow. Let's read it without the italicized he. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. This is huge and is more and more evidence that John is tacking on to this this airtight testimony that Christ is Messiah. He is I he is the I am. And in the Septuagint, that goes all the way back the same Greek word in the Septuagint version of this goes back to Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three. And recall, we keep referring to this Ramez. As soon as he said, I am the I am, they knew exactly what he was talking about. All the way back to Moses. Exodus chapter 3. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That same I am, Christ is telling them in John 8, that was sent to you then is the same I am that was sent to you now. That same I am that is sent to you now. Just want to make sure we finished off that account in John 8 before I leave it. Yeah, we did. Oh, no, let's go back to John 8. We want to get this last part of verse 25. Because there's a bit of a play on words here, or multiple meanings. I suppose we call that a double entendre, perhaps. Verse 25 of John 8. Then they said to him, Who are you? After he just said, you haven't been paying attention. I I am. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am Messiah, the Son of God, there's no choice but for you to die in your sins. So who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. From the beginning of this this account, from the beginning of John's testimony, from the beginning of his ministry, and from the very beginning, when I am first appeared before Moses. You haven't been listening, is what he's telling them. But John, through this his gospel account here, wants to leave this final absolution that leaves no doubt and no stone unturned. I am is the entire point of the gospel of John. Proof that Christ was... Christ is and will be the I am through whom we can be saved and redeemed. So that catches us up to where we were. There's still lots left to go in the book of John, and our intent is to dive back into this. And I um, can't promise we're going to get it all done before Passover, because who knows what the, what's going to come up. But for our Internet audience, this was a quick summary of John 1 through 8. You may have questions. Please feel free to reach out to us through our Facebook page in the comment section 
or through CGI, our website, cgicanada.org. You'll find the Burlington Local webpage and, and contact information there. Uh, you were not part of the, the line-by-line studies we've been doing to this point, but if you have, as I would encourage you to crack open the Gospel of John before Passover and get, read through it. See the, the, the why John felt the absolute need to document one final time that Christ was Messiah, that he was the Son of God. These two important points hinge on our ability and our opportunity to have eternal life. The Gospel of John is a thorough and sufficient legal testimony that he is both Messiah and the Son of God. And these two facts give us access to eternal life. True belief comes with expectations on our part. It's a whole lot throughout, spread throughout Scripture on that. That's another story. But notice how succinct John is, that we covered his introduction, we covered some of the body, and then we covered the conclusion. He started with what he wanted to testify about. He was very clear in his opening. He then provides examples of proof, these signs that are airtight signs, along with many others that he saw with his own eyes. And then he concludes with the why. Here's why I write this to you. And here's what you can take away from my testimony. So I'm looking forward to us finishing this this off in the coming weeks and months. And um, again, Passover is a little over 100 days away. Hopefully we can get through this, um, maybe by Passover, but... It's a, it's a magnificent uh, gospel, and there's a whole lot of reasons why John felt the need, after everything that had already been written, that before he died, he needed to get this down on paper. If you'd like to rise, we'll bid adieu to our, our uh, folks that are joined us online. Our Father in heaven, and to you, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Son of God, our High Priest, We are so grateful that you saw fit to create us and in spite of our our turning our back on you, that you wanted to see your plan through and you have this plan of redemption through the sacrifice of you, Jesus Christ, sacrifice on both your parts. We thank you that passionate men like the Apostle John lived their lives so they could document this proof for us, that they they gave their entire lives up so that they could be eyewitnesses to this fact and to spread this message and to get it down on paper for us so that any of us reading this over, over time could believe that you are the Son of God that you are Messiah, and believing in that very fact, we have access to eternal life through the grace of both you, Father, and you, Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word. We ask you to give us a passion for study. We ask you to help us to stir up your spirit to to live this way, to to teach others of this way, to live and manifest your name in our, our daily actions. We're just so grateful that as the world is all tied up in false celebrations, that we know the key to eternal life. And we ask you to be with us, be with those who are watching us online, who are, are sick and are infirmed or, or 
uh, or far flung and just can't be with congregations. Make their Sabbaths special. Uh, know that we are with them, that we are all connected through your spirit. And we thank you for these things. And we ask all these things through the name of our soon coming King, our Messiah, and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.